0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, a magic using ex cop turned Private Eye investigates a serial killer who burns his victim's eyes out to satisfy his own magical needs. Plus, part 40 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're listening. I'm Bain Books contributing editor, Gray Reinhart, sitting in for editor Tony Daniel. Award-winning fantasy author David B. Coe joins us this week to discuss his brand new Bain novel, Spellblind. This is David's first novel with Bane and kicks off a new contemporary urban fantasy series, The Case Files of Justice Fearson. David's novel captures the gritty realism of police work and the stark beauty of the Arizona desert and mixes magical concepts in compelling new ways. We will also continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. But first the news. Our January mass market paperbacks are at booksellers now, starting with Come and Take Them, the fifth novel in the Carrera series by Tom Crapman. Listeners who know their classical military history will recognize the title as the answer the Spartans gave to the Persians at Thermopylae when they were told to throw down their weapons. And readers of Colonel Kratman's novels will know that just like the Spartans, Carrera will not back down when freedom is on the line. We also have Reichspoor's Spheres of Influence, the sequel to Grand Central Arena. In this fast-paced space opera, Captain Arian Austin is faced with the challenge of being the leader of humanity, and her decisions and actions will determine humanity's fate in the galaxy and beyond. And finally, the Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs anthology, edited by Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia, is being released in the mass-market paperback format. This anthology includes stories by some of today's best-selling authors set in the worlds created by one of the masters of adventurous science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Come and Take Them, Spheres of Influence and Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Are now available at booksellers everywhere. We're here today with award winning author David B. Coe, the author of more than a dozen different novels in several different series, the very first of which, The Lon Tobin Chronicle, won the William Crawford Fantasy Award as the best new fantasy. He has done several different series, and his latest one is Here with Bain, The Case Files of Justice Fearson. And that's what we're going to be talking to David about today. David, glad to have you with us.
2: Thanks, Gray. It's great to be with you.
1: Now, let's jump right into who is Justice Fearson, Jay Fearson. Now, he's a a magic-using private investigator, but he has a problem and it's not just the latest case he's been asked to solve. His magic itself causes him problems. David, could you explain that for our listeners?
2: Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, Jay Pearson is what uh, I call a were-mist, uh, which is obviously related to the word werewolf. It's It's, uh, it's a shifting problem. When he is approaching, when, when the full moon is approaching, his magical power grows stronger. His magic is enhanced, but at the same time, his mind weakens to the point where he really loses touch with reality. And so, each month on what's called the phasing, uh, the night of the full moon and the nights immediately before and after the full moon, um, he's pretty much out of control with his magic and out of touch with reality. The problems with this, I mean, obviously if you're, if he was a cop before he became a private detective and he couldn't hold a job because of these, these periodic psychological problems he was having. And so there's a, there's a problem that he faces on a month-to-month level, just holding things together and, uh, and facing this, this problem with the moon each month. But the other residual effect of this is he is slowly losing his mind. Um, his father was also a And his father is pretty crazy at this point. And so he, this father figure, embodies for Jay his own future. He sees where he's going. He knows that really he is in this inexorable decline into permanent insanity. Uh, And that is the, that's the cost of the magic system. Um, There is a way to blunt the effects of it. There are drugs he can take, but the, side effect of the drugs is that you lose the magic. You can't you can't have magic but have no phasing. Either you get rid of one and you get rid of the other or you keep them both. And he has chosen because the magic is part of how he works and part of who he is to not take those drugs. And so this is a choice he's made that he feels strongly about and yet he also regrets all the time.
1: Well, it certainly makes for a fascinating character. And throughout the book, he wrestles with this, you know, should he uh, give up the magic in order to live a more normal life and save himself from the madness? But at the same time, he needs the magic in order to be effective in his role and believes that uh, he is doing good work with the magic, and he really is. So it's a great tension that you've put together.
2: Thank you, I appreciate that. One of the things I try to do with the book, um, and with the characters surrounding Jay, is that he has... there are three main people in his life, and each one represents a different aspect of this struggle. There's his father who, as I said, represents where he's going, the, the, the inevitable decline into insanity. And there is, uh, in the beginning, at, as this book begins, there's a new romance in his life who represents kind of the lore of getting rid of the magic and leading a normal life and and all that that could possibly be for him. And then there's his former partner on the police force who remains his closest friend and someone he works with quite a bit and who is actually responsible for drawing him into the mystery that will occupy him for this book. And she kind of represents the the day to day utility of the decision he's made the, the the reason why he needs the magic in his life all the time um, and so as you say that this tension it kind of suffuses everything in the book including these these central relationships for him
1: well and that was one of the things that I enjoyed the most about the book uh, and I've actually enjoyed that in in much of what I've read from you is the the characters that you create and the interplay between them. I, I really thought that Jay's interactions with his father, given that his father has gone through all of this and that his mind has degenerated to a great extent, uh, were, were wonderfully done, very touching. And, and I thought that the observations that you snuck in about life uh, were, were just golden, And one of the ones, if you don't mind me just reading a little snippet, was where Jay says, there isn't a person alive who doesn't have something lurking in their past or in their family that they'd rather ignore or erase. Life is about coping with all the crap that comes with being human. Some of us cope better than others. That's all. And the way you worked that in is just a quick little piece of dialogue I thought was wonderful. And my question is, when you are writing, do you set out intentionally to put in little nuggets like that, or do they just flow from the characters you've created and the relationships that you're trying to portray?
2: For me, it's very much the latter, I have no idea when I start a scene between two characters and the, and the, the the scene that you're talking about, that quote that you've just uh, that you've just given us, comes from a scene between Jay and his love interest, Billy castle and when I started writing that scene, as I do with all the scenes that I write that involve dialogue, I knew that they would end up talking about their family lives, kind of the way we do when we're starting a relationship with someone and filling them in and who, on who we are and where we come from. But beyond that, I didn't know. Um, you know, I I've, I've spend a lot of time building my characters, uh, creating backstory for them and, and trying to fill in all those details that I need to know in order to write them. My, my reader doesn't need to know all of them, but I certainly do. And so the dialogue comes from that, and it's really very much a matter of me putting myself in the shoes of my characters, and then allowing them to lead me where they want to go. I liked that passage when I wrote it, but I had no idea what I was going to say until I typed the words, if that makes any sense at all.
1: Oh, it makes great sense. And I I love to hear about uh, folks' creative processes. And so with that in mind, I want to look, a little more closely at the idea of the wear mists these, these magic users whose power increases as the moon becomes full, but whose control over their power decreases at the same time. To me that seemed like a great melding of ideas, and I wondered how you came up with that and how you decided to put those ideas together.
2: Well. It's a good question, and it it actually leads to to a a deeper discussion of of this book and its history. When I first wrote the book that would become Spellblind, that was not the magic system. The magic system consisted of something else entirely. And that old magic system didn't work for a number of reasons. It didn't work commercially. It didn't work artistically. And I, I think on some level, I was... I had found a character I liked and I was struggling with what to do with him. And I've, I've written about this on my blog fairly recently and basically said that sometimes as artists our creative ambitions are beyond our creative abilities. And we need to grow into some of the books that we write. And this was definitely a book that I grew into. And eventually, in thinking about a magic system that would... Offer the kinds of challenges I wanted that would that would let Jay be in in a kind of a, a a motion of decline this this sense that that he's 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 going down in this spiral and that every act of magic costs him something, and that at the bottom of the spiral is his father um and what his father has become. I started thinking about what different types of magic could lead me to that place. And eventually, this was what I came up with. It was very much a deliberate act of creation. Sometimes magic systems come to us and, and just, you know, kind of a flash of inspiration, and you can build a whole book around it. In this case, I had characters, and I had an idea for a book, and I didn't have the magic system yet. And it was very much a conscious, how can I do all the things that I want to do with this magic system? And in the end, this was the thing I came up with that worked the best. And the more I explored it, the more I played with it, the better I liked it, and the more rich I found it to be from a narrative and character development point of view.
1: I like the way you just described that in terms of its its richness, because that is something that I got little glimpses of throughout the novel. And in particular, it seemed as if you you would drop hints now and again about this whole society of wear mists that exists alongside the mundane society. The people that he would encounter who also had this same ability, and then, for example, the scene at the, at the moon market right before the phasing, and you allude to the, the different remedies that wear mists would try to counteract the moon's effects, those who, unlike Jay, are seeking the drugs to try to uh, avoid the madness that goes with the power. Very brief glimpses that still gave me an idea that this is a a society that is as diverse and complex as the society that that we live in every day. And and to me, that was just masterful. And so I want to know... Uh, how much more of this society are we going to see in future stories?
2: Uh, the short answer is quite a bit. Uh, in The the second book is called His Father's Eyes, uh, and it'll be out in July. Uh, no, August, excuse me. And uh, you start to see a great deal uh, of this kind of under-society of the Weirmas world, and um, there is, uh, as people will find out kind of there, there, there are two sides to We're Myth Society, and, and there is a, a battle brewing between this kind of dark sense of, of uh, folks who are using blood magic and other magics that are supposed to be forbidden and those who are trying to to avoid doing those things. Um, there is a whole society of weirs, and not we are mists, but actual weirs who exist In the society as well and they have a lesser magic and their magic includes shifting into an animal but it's not like werewolves as we think of them where you know if they bite you (laughs) you become one or they turn vicious or anything like that they just have a dual um, nature and when they become their animal they're very much their animal and when they become when they go back to being human they're very much human but they do shift and there's a hierarchy of magic and a um, and almost a, almost a caste system among the various levels of magic, um, and people looking to exploit um, those with with weaker but still useful magics for them. So there's there's a whole society out there that I I really, as you say, I, I hint at it in the first book. I really start to play with it in the second book and the third book. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, but I, I appreciate your kind words about the the society. Writing about the moon market was a lot of fun to do. Um, the the people there are people who are in a way kind of trying to cheat the system. They're not willing to use the blockers that would keep them from having magic, but they're looking for any. They're looking desperately for any herbal cure, any alternate cure that would allow them to have their magic but avoid. The worst of the phasings, and what Jay has decided is, there's really no such beast. Either, either you're in, you know, in for all of it, or you're not. And and uh, he's he's kind of grappling with that when he's at the market, and of course he's also looking for clues to solve this mystery that he's after, and and uh, he he finds a doozy at the Moon Market.
1: Indeed, he does. But we're not going to give away anything about the book because because folks need to go out and get it and read it. Um,
2: yeah, and, and give it his gifts, too. That's a good idea.
1: <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> now, you placed the action of this novel in and around Phoenix, Arizona, and I spent several years when I was in the service in the Mojave Desert, and so as I was reading the book, I thought your descriptions of the desert landscape were Remarkably true to life. Uh, now, I will admit, I did not find the desert quite as beautiful as Jay does in the in the novel, but I could recognize things in there that I remembered. And so, my question has to do with your background. Doesn't really speak to s- as someone who's spent a lot of time in the in the desert. You you grew up around New York. You went to school in northern California. You you live up in in the hills of Tennessee. Um <laughs> How did you come to know the desert so well?
2: I've traveled extensively uh, in the, in the desert. I have spent a ton of time driving around the southwest, camping in the southwest, bird watching in the southwest. It's my favorite part of the country. Um and to be perfect, and this is one of those things for for any aspiring writers out there, you know um, those of us who do this professionally have been doing it for a while will tell you never ever throw anything away. I went back and I read through the journals that I kept as I was doing those road trips through the southwest, and a lot of the descriptions that I use are plucked right out of my notes from when I was you know in uh, in between college and graduate school and driving around and traveling and, and kind of kicking around wasting time and doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing, but really enjoying the Southwest. Um, in, uh, in a later book in the series, uh, Jay spends some time in a place called, called Organ Pipe uh, Cactus National Park, or National Monument, and I spent... I camped there, and literally, you know, just lifted notes wholesale from my journals from then in order to write the descriptions of the place. So I'm very familiar with the Southwest. I love the Southwest, and being able to write about it was really fun. Now I should also say that that setting is also kind of a, a remnant of the first version of the book. I could, given that I ended up writing about where myths, I probably could have set the book almost anywhere. And yet, by that time, the book really felt like it belonged in the Southwest. And there's this motif throughout where um, things that are, that are evil and dark tend to be associated with fire, and those things that are soothing and helpful and, and you know, quote-unquote good, are represented um, through water and cooling. And, and that motif in the prose... Was meant to reinforce the setting, and, and it was really fun to write and to play with those ideas, and to um, try to deepen. You know, again, I'm using that word, but trying to deepen and, and enrich the uh, the writing with that sense of place and that motif centered around place.
1: Well, it's something that I have noticed in in some of your other work as well. For instance, your your Thief Taker series that takes place in pre Revolutionary War Boston. I really feel as if I am there when I read those books. And so I think that that's something that you do very, very well and that our readers will appreciate.
2: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. The The Thief Taker books are uh, are also very dear to me. I write those uh, under a different name. Those are my D.B. Jackson books. Um, and, uh, and it's funny, because in a way, I feel that the lead character in the DB Jackson books and the lead character in the Fearson books they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of things in common i think that they would they would end up being friends were they to meet at some you know intermediate time time <laughs> in history
1: that will be the time travel book that you have to write later
2: yes there you go
1: <laughs> now back to to Justice Fearson, to, to Jay Fearson, and, and who he is. You know, he, as you said, uh, is an ex-cop. He he wanted to be a policeman and follow in his, in his father's footsteps, and uh, was a, a pretty good cop, except for the effects of the phasings on him. And there are times in this book that his regret at having to leave the police force were very clear. But one of the things that I thought as I was reading that was that your descriptions of police work seemed very, very authentic. I'm I'm personally not qualified to say uh, how much of them were completely accurate, but from a a plausibility standpoint, I think you get get an authenticity standpoint, you get high marks. And so I wondered uh, if you could tell our listeners uh, how you uh, came to be able to infuse this novel with so much depth and detail?
2: Well, again, thank you for that. Um, a lot of it had to do with conversations I had with someone who worked in the Phoenix Police Department uh, back when I was writing the first version of the book in the, like 2005-2006. Um, and I... Talk to this person um, by phone. Not not all that long in total, but you know we had we had five or six fairly lengthy conversations, and the information I got from that really helped me fill in some of the details of life in the Phoenix Police Department. At one point, for instance, uh, Jay remarks on the fact that all the detectives. Used to have offices, and then they lost those offices and were placed in cubicles. And because of that, they had to go and buy uh, safes for themselves to put their papers, uh, their paperwork in, because their offices were no longer secure. And they had to do this at their own expense. That came directly from the conversations that I'm talking about. Uh, Phoenix police. Uh, personnel refer to their headquarters, not as HQ or something like that, but as 620, because the address of the place is 620, I believe it's uh, Washington Street in downtown Phoenix. And being able just to put in a tiny little detail of that sort, where you're calling the place 620, and it bears explaining to the reader, but once it's explained, it's this tidbit of authenticity that ties them inextricably to the place in which the books are set. Those little details were crucial, and this person I spoke to was enormously helpful. Um, I later had other conversations with someone else in the police department, uh, because obviously some of the stuff I was dealing with was was outdated by the time I wrote this newer version of the book. But these other conversations I had with this second person reinforced some of the things I already knew and kind of filled me in on greater details, like which... Uh, which beats and precincts had the most problems, and where in particular within the beats and precincts there were the deepest problems. Um, and then after that, it was simply a matter of trying to put yourself in the, the mindset of a point-of-view character and, and think like someone uh, in a job where their lives are put on the line every day and, and they're dealing with horrific, horrific events every day of their lives that, those of us who have never been police officers can can scarcely imagine, uh, and trying to to find the right voice for that character with the factual information I had and the the empathy that we try to apply to our characters.
1: Well, once again, I th- I think that you did a great job with that, but I think for for to wrap things up from my standpoint, um, you've mentioned a couple of times how this book uh, seems to have had its own sort of, of arc, if you will, its own history of a start and a stop and a start and a stop. Um, and it would seem to me to finally have a project like this come to uh, fruition would be immensely satisfying. And I wonder if you have any more uh, you could share with us about uh, what it took to stick with this project for so long in order to get it to the point where people now have this story and they can read it and enjoy it?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I appreciate the question. Um, this, this book, as I say, it's been with me for the better part of nine years now. Um, the first time I wrote it, uh, was, was in 2005, and I didn't get it right. I had managed to sell it at that point to, uh, to a small press uh, that soon after we made the sale, the small press went under. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that this is not a sign that the book is jinxed, because I really like having Bane in the world. Um,
1: <laughs> so do we. Uh, the,
2: the key for this for me with this book was the characters. I loved Jay Pearson as a character. I loved his interaction with his father, with Billy, with his partner on the force, Kona Shaw, um, and a few other key characters. And, and those interactions were what drew me to the, to the book again and again and again. But the book needed to be torn apart and put back together and then torn apart again and put back together. And as I said earlier in, this, in our discussion, to some degree it was a matter of my ambitions for the book being beyond my capacity as a writer when I first wrote it. Uh, and I have slowly but surely grown into this book. Um, and after ripping it apart and putting it back together wholesale, you know, new, new magic system, new plot, new antagonist, new, <laughs> new title, I mean, everything. But after doing that literally four times, I finally got it right. And what this book for me represents is, is kind of, well, it, hap- it, it, it operates on a number of levels. On the one level, to me, it, it shows me that I finally did grow into the ambitions I had for the project, and, and I mastered my craft enough to be able to write the book that I had wanted to write so many years ago. But I think it also shows that a lot of what this profession is about, for all of us who engage in it, is simply perseverance and putting in the hours and putting our butts in the chair and writing every day and getting better and putting the words on the page until they're right. Um, And so I kind of like the workman-like aspect of this project uh, because this project was entirely about doing the work and, and challenging myself and forcing myself to grow and sticking with it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as you say, seeing it in print is probably the most gratifying thing of my entire career. It's probably, it, it's no book's release has ever meant more to me than the release of this book means to me.
1: Well, I can say, as having just read it and, and enjoyed it very much, I am glad you put in the work to make this book a reality, and I'm even more glad that we saw the potential in this book and decided to publish it. And I think that our uh, readers will enjoy it very, very much. Anything else you have for us, David?
2: No, I don't think so. This has been a a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time with me, and I appreciate your kind words about the book. Uh, I'm delighted to be writing for Bain. I've known all of you at Bain for so many years, and to finally be able to work with you guys has been a pleasure and something that I hope we'll be able to continue for a long, long time to come.
1: I hope so, too. Uh, At the very least, we now have Spellblind in print as a hardcover, and then we have His Father's Eyes coming out this summer, and hopefully there will be more and more volumes in this series to come. David, I'd like to thank you... Isn't titled yet. No, okay, but uh, and hopefully there will be even more beyond that.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: Thanks. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, I hope that your uh, upcoming uh, conventions and, and book tours are very, very successful, and that you let me know if there's anything I can do to help you.
2: Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate that.
1: And now, Part 40 of the Complete Audiobook Serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. Seriously, just pause the podcast and pull up the website. If you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days or you can choose from more than a 100,000 other titles, though I'm not sure why you'd want to, since the one we're talking about is so good. If you're just joining us, it's the 1930s in America, but it's a quite different America than our history books describe. In the 1860s, magical abilities manifested in a small number of people from all walks of life, and in each generation since, More and more people have developed magical talents and are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but not all of them. Jake Sullivan is an active known as a heavy because he can control the force of gravity, a talent he's gotten very good at over the years. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and now a private eye who was recruited into a secret organization of actives known as the Grim Noir Knights. The knights are the good guys, and the rest of humanity needs their help because the evil forces of magic are about to unleash a magic-based apocalypse. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 40 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic.
0: Sullivan had taken a beating, but he was still strong enough to carry both Delilah and Lance, one under each arm. Heinrich had Garrett while Francis had thrown the surprisingly frail weight of John Moses Browning over his shoulders in a fireman's carry. Behind them, a butler's limbs were torn off, one by one, and smoke from the destroyed summoned obscured the first floor. Fay brought up the rear carrying Browning's shotgun she blasted a rushing undead in the knee, then slammed the kitchen door shut just as it slid into the wood with a crash. Heinrich took the lead, Garrett's arm thrown over one shoulder, his shoes dragging limp, leaving blood splatter across the pale tiles. Heinrich kicked open a door and started down. Fay was stronger than she looked and shoved a table against the door as the zombies crashed into it. Schnell, hurry, Heinrich shouted. Francis stumbled after them, his arms slick with blood. Browning wasn't moving. Francis was so scared he could barely breathe. Maddie was in no shape to drive, so he sat in the passenger seat of the truck as the shadow guard took them up to their maximum speed of 50 miles an hour. He'd made Hiroyasu, that cowardly bag of piss, right in the back. The handful of surviving men probably wouldn't make it to the other truck in time, and That was if the undead didn't lose it and pull them apart, but that was too bad. They hadn't particularly impressed him, so no great loss. The Peace Ray would take care of the evidence; he could always recruit more. The Grim Noir had managed to hurt him bad. Every one of his kanji was earning its keep now, forcing his heart to keep pumping, moving oxygen to his brain and knitting together broken blood vessels. He was starving. Getting hurt always made him hungry. I could really go for a good meatloaf and a cold Coca-Cola. The healer stirred, came awake, and screamed her heart out when she saw him. She started thrashing, which he found annoying, and the driver jerked the truck when she struck his face, so Maddie reached over and knocked the hell out of her with the back of his hand. Her face struck the dash. That'll leave a mark, he said. Keep squealing in my ear and I'll pop you a good one next time. She folded her arms tight and seemed to shrink into the seat, trying not to cry. What are you going to do with me? You'll be lucky if it's with you and not to you, he snorted. You can start earning your keep by fixing the hole in my heart. You got any power left after that? I've got one lung full of blood. Her eyes grew defiant. I'll never help the likes of you. She had a spine. He could appreciate that. Bitch! You heard of Unit 731? That scared her. Everybody had heard about them. Yeah, you know what those weirdos would give to have a mender to experiment on? Especially a soft little thing like you? He rubbed one hand down her bruised cheek and she flinched away. So, unless you want them carving on you, you'll do what I say. He gave her a second to think about it while he checked his watch. They should be clear of the blast a chic old light-em-up. It will be done, she responded from fifty miles away. Accelerators are at full, but that's barely seven percent of maximum. Lazy Americans can't be bothered to even maintain their equipment, firing in two minutes. It'll do, he said. We are on our way out. There was relief in her words. He couldn't blame her. The Imperium's recent experiments into ray technology showed that the very air around a beam could kill or sicken you. Some sort of invisible poison got in the atmosphere and it would actually damage your cells. He'd once seen Unit 731 tie a bunch of prisoners to stakes at various distances along the path of a small beam, and they timed everyone to see how long it took them to die, either burned immediately or throwing their lungs up and dying covered in black blisters. It hadn't been pretty but he wasn't worried about that now. He'd got himself a new pet healer. The stairs were steep. Sullivan's big boots could barely find purchase on the narrow stones. The muscles in his arms were burning, almost like the magical fire on top of his chest. He had Delilah clamped under one arm, and he hoped that she would hang on. She'd lost so much blood that he was terrified to even look at her. Lance was short, weighed a ton, and was completely unconscious, and therefore useless. His auto-rifle was still banging back and forth on its sling against his back, but he was too worried about zombies following them down to drop it. An electric battery torch had been stashed at the top of the stairs, and all he could see was a narrow, pale beam swinging back and forth ahead as Heinrich led them into the bowels of the earth. Delilah cried out in pain as he slipped and hit the damp wall. It'll be okay, baby. We're gonna make it, he whispered. They kept going. Behind them, someone tripped and cursed. They needed to stop and tend to the wounded. Keeping Delilah moving was a death sentence, just as surely as stopping and waiting for the peace ray to end them. They had to be a couple hundred feet under the ocean cliffs by now, and he didn't know if that would be enough. How much further? The rich kid, Francis, was a few feet away. Almost there, he gasped. Not good enough. If this ray had a fraction of the energy as the one they'd hit Berlin with, there wouldn't be near enough dirt overhead to save them. They hadn't called it the peace ray then. The Brits had christened it Tesla's Sickle, but his boys weren't poetic. They had simply called it the death ray. Kinetic energy had shattered everything around the impact zone and turned the Reichstag into a blackened pit but it was the wave of carnage that had radiated out from it that had done the real killing. Sullivan had seen the bodies like broken charcoal statues frozen wherever they'd been when the destroying angel had come. One snap of light and a whole city had died. The heat alone would be enough to steam them like lobsters in this tunnel. Move faster, Sullivan bellowed to nobody in particular. There was a noise ahead, water crashing against stone and behind the hate-filled screams of the dead and under his arm a rasping breath as Delilah's life slipped further away and over everything came the crackling hum as the peace ray hit. Light filled the universe and for the first time in many years, Sullivan prayed for a miracle. The peace ray discharged at 15 minutes after 2 o'clock in the morning, It was not an impressive sight from Lick Hill, even if any of the crew had been alive to appreciate it. In fact, with the warning klaxons disabled by the shadow guard, the only sign of the impending destruction was a single match flicker of white, as particles were hurled up a thousand-foot copper spiral to a terrible velocity and flung to the west. The simple fused dynamite explosion at the base of the tower a moment later possessed not even the tiniest glimmer of the Peace Ray's power, but it would leave a few steel girders twisted, delicate cog-designed electronics shattered and the costly weapon disabled. But by the time that was done, the Peace Ray had already struck the small coastal town of Mar Pacifica. Only the undead were walking at the impact point, their skeletons briefly visible through their flesh like a perfect X-ray, frozen in time, before being swept away in cleansing fire. Even at only 7% power, the flash was seen as far away as Sacramento.
1: That was Part 40 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that concludes our podcast for today. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to David B. Coe, author of Spellblind, new this month from Bain Books and available at booksellers everywhere. This is Bain Books contributing editor Gray Reinhart, and it has been my pleasure to be your host for today's podcast. Please join us next time on the Bain Free Radio Hour where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.